Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham. Thank you for joining us for the Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. The ocean comprises 70% of the Earth's surface. It's also 10 trillion times more opaque than the Earth's atmosphere. What this means is that historically, we have known very little about the vast ocean ecosystem, let alone its health. However, now, given the constellation of thousands of low-level satellites equipped with different sensing devices and distributed around the Earth, recently we have begun to learn a lot more. In my interview with Jim Leap, the co-director for Stanford Center for Ocean Solutions, he shares with us a few emerging technologies that are allowing companies that buy seafood and governments that regulate international waters to better understand the province of the fish and to identify illegal fishing operations. Join me for this fascinating underwater exploration of technology that's literally driving the more dynamic and transparent management of our ocean ecosystem. This is Katherine Cunningham with Natural Intelligence Media. I'm here in the Eurovision studios at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, 2020. I'm sitting here with Jim Leap, who is the co-director of the Stanford Center for Ocean Solutions. Not just ocean research, but ocean solutions. Tell us about some of these solutions and the importance of technology in divining these solutions to help protect our marine wildlife and ocean ecosystems. Well, thanks, Catherine. And the Stanford Center for Ocean Solutions was created several years ago to help connect research to action. And, and we work on ocean issues across many domains. Uh, but one of the issues that brought us here to the World Economic Forum meeting is work we've been doing looking at what technology and data innovations can bring to helping us be better stewards of ocean resources. And we released a report here that we prepared for the high-level panel, which is 14 heads of state focused on a sustainable ocean economy that begins to explore how ocean management can improve in the years to come by taking advantage of these emerging capabilities. So the ocean, I was corrected <laughs> by Peter, Peter Thompson. Thompson, right? Yes, this is his narrative, that it is just one ocean. Mm -hmm. So it's brilliant that you have these high-level panels, which include, maybe you can share with us some of the people who are involved in these discussions, but world leaders from around the world that have a sense that we live in a world with one ocean and that it's our collective responsibility to steward this ocean. And so maybe you can share who was part of this panel and something of the discussion, what kinds of databases we're creating and why. So let me, let me talk about two parts of that. The high-level panel for whom we prepared this paper is 14 heads of state. It's co-chaired by the Prime Minister of Norway and the President of Palau, but it includes heads of state from a dozen other countries, Canada, Japan, Australia, Ghana, Fiji, etc. This group offers an important opportunity to really advance the world's understanding of ocean issues and, and commitment to, to doing what we're going to need to do to take care of those resources. In this report, what we looked at is the implication of emerging data and technology capabilities. And it starts from a recognition that for all of human history, our relationship with the ocean has been defined by the fact that we know practically nothing about what's happening underwater and even on the surface. Because the ocean is 3,700 meters deep on average and 10 trillion times more opaque than the atmosphere. So it's very hard to see what's happening under the surface. And of course, the ocean itself is largely over the horizon for anyone stuck on land. And that means that, that ocean health has been hard to monitor, and it means that our use of the oceans has also been hard to monitor. Mm -hmm. And yet that's changing very quickly. 
And to take the easiest example, we now have literally thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth, many of which are able to observe what's happening on the surface of the sea. And one great example is Global Fishing Watch, created through a partnership between Oceana, an ocean conservation group, SkyTruth and Google, and the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. Global Fishing Watch takes satellite data and uses that data to track the movement of every large fishing vessel on the sea, 60,000 vessels, who can be tracked every day, and through machine learning algorithms can be tracked. The tracks can tell us not only where they went, but when they were fishing and when they weren't. So this allows us for the first time to bring real transparency to the fishing industry and to be able to identify fishers who are fishing where they shouldn't be. How is that data then being translated into political regulations or monitoring, creating incentives for sustainable fishing and not illegal fishing? This is new. This technology builds from one year to the next as new data sources come online. So Global Fishing Watch currently can track 60,000 vessels, but their goal is to get to 300,000 vessels, and it becomes increasingly powerful. I mean, it's having several effects. One is it, for the first time, means that companies who buy seafood are increasingly in the position to identify the boats that are providing the food that they buy and where those boats have been fishing and how. So it gives new visibility to buyers of seafood about the origins of the fish uh, they purchase. But secondly, it also puts governments in a much better position to identify boats that are fishing illegally in their waters or boats who come to their ports wanting to offload their fish but may have been fishing illegally while they were at sea. And so it enables both better accountability and supply chains and much better enforcement of marine conservation measures by the governments. Is it every unique vessel can be identified? So, so the Global Fishing Watch operates by satellites picking up the pings from transponders that these boats carry, because every boat over a certain size is required to carry a transponder that pings constantly to help make sure it doesn't run into another boat in the dark or in the fog. But those pings can be picked up by the satellite and therefore can be used to track the boat. So that's the sort of foundational technology. That can be then complemented by other kinds of satellites that use radar, for example, to spot boats that have turned off their transponders and that track the lights of boats that fish at night and so forth. So there is a lot of potential to build out these capabilities over the years ahead. And it means that we will more and more have a quite robust picture of how ocean resources are being used and be in a much better position to catch those who are using them illegally. I remember last year at the the New Deal for Nature Mm -hmm. dinner that we were fed this, I think it was a Patagonian, which one was it? Patagonia toothfish. It's a Patagonian toothfish, and we were fed this fish that had been tracked with a a certain ID or QR code, and so the province of this fish was known all the way from let's say, sea to plate. And so share with us um, something about that technology and how that can be used to create transparency. And yeah, so that's an important complement to what we just talked about. So it's one thing to know what did boats do while they were fishing. Were they fishing legally? In the case of the Patagonian toothfish served at last year's dinner, that was from a fishery that was certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, which is the gold standard in sustainability certification. So the sustainability of the fleet was assured through that mechanism. But then an organization called Open SC, which was created by WWF and the Boston Consulting Group, established a blockchain platform which allows the company to trace its product all the way from the boat to the supermarket or a restaurant. 
And that meant that at that dinner, you, there was a QR code on the menu, and you could scan the QR code and find out the story behind the fish you were eating. I think what we've learned over the last 20 years is that supply chains can be very powerful vehicles for driving a shift towards sustainable production. And the Marine Stewardship Council is on the vanguard of that effort in seafood, now just over 20 years old. And the Marine Stewardship Council has certified about, I think, 15% of the global market. So about 15% of the world's fisheries operate under Marine Stewardship Council certification. But in some categories, I think most importantly, they have really taken over the market. So, for example, I think it's 60 plus percent of all the whitefish sold in the world is under MSC certification. So they're a very important player, in, especially in some parts of the market. And what these new technologies enable is, is to reinforce the power of that tool by then providing sort of the data that both enhance transparency and enhance the ability to trace all the way from ship to shore. And this technology also, importantly, has the potential to help make sure that small fishers can also engage in these markets for sustainable production. So one of the examples we talked about yesterday is a project between Thai Union, which is one of the largest seafood companies in the world, and a small startup called Fishcoin. And what Thai Union is committed to sustainability, both in its wild capture fisheries and in its farmed fish, especially farmed shrimp, and as it's working towards those goals, it's enlisted Fishcoin, which has created a blockchain platform that allows Thai Union to offer compensation to shrimp farmers, small-scale shrimp farmers, for providing the data that Thai Union needs to ensure sustainability. And so they pay the farmers to provide this data, and they pay them through a blockchain in cell phone minutes because that's a valuable and universal commodity. Oh, how interesting. Right? But that means that then, you know, the farmers have an incentive to make sure they're collecting the kind of data that will help the company be confident in what they're buying. Now you're saying farmers, you mean fishers. But fish, fish farmers. But fish, fish farmers. farmers. So this is interesting. Maybe you can share something about the fish stocks and where we actually are getting our fish product, um, where we're sourcing marine wildlife. And if we're thinking about, you know, establishing more in aquaculture let's say, resource for harvesting fish, then how does that feed into our ability to recover some of these wild Yeah, so there's, there's a lot there. So the most striking fact about the seafood sector is that this is the one major sector of the global food economy in which we still hunt animals in the wild, number one. And number two, we have a particular preference for carnivores, which we could not imagine eating on land, right? But we right. favor tuna for example, and salmon and others that, that eat um, smaller fish. But secondly, that wild capture fishery globally has plateaued long ago and is not a growing source of seafood. It could grow under better management. We could get a greater supply out of that fishery if we did a better job of managing the resource, but we're not. And so it's been relatively stagnant as a source of seafood. What's happened over the last couple of decades is a phenomenal growth of farmed fish, of aquaculture which is the fastest growing segment of the food sector and which has in recent years now overtaken wild capture fisheries. So most seafood now is from aquaculture. And that, of course, has a lot of potential. It has its own environmental consequences from the destruction of coastal habitats to create fish farms, to use a reliance on pesticides and other chemicals, to, of course, a very concentrated production of waste. And in particular for some farmed fish, a heavy reliance on wild fish, turned into fish meal to feed the farmed fish. Farm salmon, farm shrimp are fed 
feed that comes in part from wild fish, not bycatch, from the harvest of wild fish to be turned into fish meal. Well, that doesn't um, make any feed. sense. Well, it has been an important way of ensuring that the farmed fish have, for example, omega-3s and things like that, that you get. But why wouldn't you just then use the wild-caught fish? Is it less fish? Yes, so, I mean, <laughs> so one of the great conservation challenges here, and companies have made significant progress in recent years, but one of the key conservation challenges is to actually develop feed for aquaculture, for these aquaculture fish that doesn't rely on capturing wild fish. They don't understand why we would fish wild catch fish to then feed to aquaculture that we then feed to ourselves. It feels like why wouldn't you just then eat the wild fish? Well, you're not capturing salmon to feed to salmon. You're capturing anchoveta, for example, to turn into fish meal to make the feed that you feed farm salmon. I see. And salmon is a preferred fish. I understand. So you can understand how it would happen. It's just that as these industries get grow in scale, you get into much more serious concerns about the sustainability of the industry, in particular from its reliance on wild fish. And so there is a lot of work underway to address that, and, and leading companies have made some significant progress, but that remains, I mean, that's a key piece of the puzzle. Understood. So what are some other new data resources? So one is that as we get more and more sources of data from satellites, from sensors in the water, from social media, from sensors on fishing nets and on boats, um, from many different possible sources. As we get more and more data, we are increasingly in a position to manage the ocean in a much more dynamic way. Historically, you know, fishing quotas might be set once a year, and that's it. But now, as conditions change or as catches monitored, it's possible to actually manage a fishery in real time in a way that puts you in a position to manage it much more sustainably and efficiently, or to manage it to make sure that you don't exceed bycatch limitations or other problems. You're not catching turtles or sharks. Um, So that's one, is that the availability of increasingly robust near real-time data allows you to manage much more effectively. But to take advantage of any of these possibilities, one of the central challenges we face is to make sure that data that are being produced are increasingly available for these kinds of uses. And it's just human nature, I think, that we want to hold our data close. And sometimes that's, of course, grounded in legitimate concerns about privacy, which we all have, or proprietary interests for companies or security interests for governments. But there are a lot of data out there that could be valuable to ocean management that aren't actually important to any of those interests. And so I think the biggest challenge here and the biggest opportunity is to change that culture, to create incentives and expectations that we share much more of the data that could help us meet management challenges and that we create the systems that make that much easier. It's, it's both recognizing that we need to be proactive if these kinds of technologies, this kind of innovation is going to serve the public good needs, the needs of managing a collective resource and not just commercial needs, and that these tools are going to be increasingly available to communities and decision makers all over the world who need them, not just those who sit in wealthy countries. But those are tractable challenges, and now we just need to take them on. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you for listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide podcast. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com forward slash worldwide. Have a beautiful day.